First, 228 to 310. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice the righteousness of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, kids, for reading that to us. Um, some strong words coming out of the mouths of our children as John talks about sin today and mentions it multiple times in this passage. One of my favorite modern hymns is the song, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. We've sung it before at church, and we're, we're closed with it today. I can remember the first time I sang it at the Together for the Gospel conference, and I was so powerfully impacted uh, by the final verse. It, it says this, the final verse. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness, his triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold, his face forever to behold. When I came to sing those final lines the first time I'd ever heard that song, it, it caused me actually an emotional experience to tear up and I couldn't help myself as I thought about seeing Jesus' face to face as Paul mentioned, or excuse me, as John mentions today in chapter 3, verse 2. <clears throat> what would that be like? How will you respond to that when Jesus appears? Will you be one who runs to embrace him like a child of God, seeing your brother Christ, your Savior, for the first time face to face? Or will you shrink from that, shrink from him in shame, as John mentions, at his coming. What will that look like? The two comings of Christ, his first and his second coming, are the most radical and powerful rivals in all of human history. 
This morning in our passage, John wants to make clear the connection between knowing God in both of Jesus' comings and doing righteousness, the connection and the link there. Well, so far, John has encouraged us as a little summary to find complete joy and fellowship with God. And as God has called us to walk in obedience, the light with God as he is light, he's encouraged us to assess the validity of our faith by finding assurance that we know we know him through the tests, those tests we talked about of obedience, tests of brotherly love, and then the doctrinal test, what do you believe about Jesus? Now, this morning, we're encouraged to look at Christ's first and second coming. And so he uses these two comings of Christ as, as motivating factors as we look at our motives for righteous living, finding the power to do so by abiding in him again, we'll talk about, and realizing we have God's seed. So let's look at the two comings and how John uses them. Grab your outline. Hopefully you got it with you or printed it out or have it on another screen and have your scripture open to this First John passage. As we look at the two comings, let's start with the uh, second coming, as John does, and see what it reminds us. The second coming of Christ reminds us too. We're starting there today. He takes them out of order as he addresses the second coming first, and then we'll talk about his first coming in a little bit. When he says in verse 28, look with me if you've got your Bible, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John makes an argument that looking towards the future, his appearing, looking towards Christ's return, should have a positive effect in the present right now. You can put it uh, in a, a different way, a simple way, having one eye on heaven and one on earth at the same time. The second coming of Christ and, and the dwelling on it is so important for our life in the here and now. But I know that I often live, as, as Paul Tripp, we've quoted him a couple times recently, describes, I live as an eternity amnesiac. I forget about the reality of seeing Jesus' face again someday. He puts it like this, Paul Tripp says, I've often lived as an eternity amnesiac. I too often lived with the unrealistic expectations and functional hopelessness that always results when you tell yourself that this life you have right here, right now is all there is. No, he says, embedded in the promise of a future is the guarantee of grace for what you're facing right here, right now. comes from his book called Forever. Embedded in Christ's second appearing and Christ's return is a future guarantee that he can come through on keeping us faithful and completing the work inside of us he started right now. He's working inside of us right now. Even as each and every one of us is with, uh, with, with what we're facing right now with this pandemic. Even in the tension we're all feeling right now around the desire to restart different sections of life, whether work or church, or just going out to eat. And, you know, it doesn't matter what side you are even on in that discussion, and there have been sides drawn. We're seeing unprecedented levels, I think, of fear, anxiety, villainizing of those we differ with. We're seeing people being dragged into arguments, and I'm seeing irritability levels reaching new heights. As both sides are beginning to mistrust 
We mistrust any authority that doesn't tell us what we want to hear. When as Christians, we're called to assume the best of others, not stand in judgment of their motives, especially if they don't give us information about those motives. And this passage, verse 3, tells us that we're going to look different to this world. In fact, it'd almost be like they don't know us, like they didn't know Jesus. As they look at us and say, who are these people? And, and why are they so calm? Why are they not as irritable as everyone else? I want us to respond in this moment. I encourage you to respond as kingdom citizens in this moment. So let's look at some of those implications of eternity as the second coming of Christ reminds us to first abide in him so we do not shrink back when he comes. When his face forever to behold, as the song said, appears before you, how will you respond? The key here is will you run towards him in confidence or shrink back in shame from his glorious face? The connection for John is abiding for him, he says in this verse, so that you aren't ashamed when he appears. But what does abiding really mean? It's all over the New Testament. Abiding in Jesus, abiding in the vine where the branches. Abide in me, you, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's kind of important if John mentions it a bunch that we understand it. Abiding in Jesus, it, it means an ongoing, it's an ongoing active word, abiding. Not just abide once, but to remain in consistent communion, communication, and union with Jesus. Aren't there times, if you think about your cell phone, aren't there times when you get annoyed at how consistent communication can be with a cell phone? Right? It dings, it dings, it dings. No rings anymore, nobody calls, but it dings, doesn't it? Or you feel the um, phantom vibration in your pocket, <laughs> and you think, oh, oh, it's him again, oh, it's her again. Well, have you treated consistent communion and communication with God the same way? Maybe you haven't been abiding with him daily, ongoing, moment-by-moment moment trust in Jesus. So how do we do it? How do we practically abide in Jesus? Well, John's already told us in this book, if you remember back from a couple weeks ago, chapter uh, 2, verse 24, he said, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. John told us that. He says, basically, we, 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 we marinate in, we rehearse in, we speak to ourselves what we heard from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus, and truly have that, by doing that, an experience of Knowing God, that which we have heard from the beginning needs to abide in us so we will abide in Jesus, who is the gospel. That's why we talk about it so much. That's why every page of the Bible, and especially the New Testament, is, is, is laying out for us the beauties and the glory of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, to let the first things we learn abide in us, we delight in him. And there's a sense on the heart of his presence and of his second coming that John speaks about. And that then, in turn, gives us an assurance, a confidence to live in the here and now, and a confidence for the day he returns. We, now, we've been doing a lot of time abiding, haven't we? 
remaining in our houses during this pandemic. A lot of time. Those walls are probably feeling a little smaller. You're maybe tired of playing skip bow for the 50th time, you know. Imagine if we gave as much time to abiding in Jesus as we have given to thinking about, when are we getting over this? Abiding in him impacts how you will respond, not only to how when you see him, but how you live in the here and now too. It impacts how you respond when you see him. That idea goes for the Christian too. You might think, well, that's just uh, for the non-Christian. You know, we just know how the Christian will respond. But I think actually different Christians will have different experiences at seeing Jesus. Paul in a different place speaking of the uh, judgment seat where we will come before Christ speaks of, a, of some that will have their works burned up because they were built on hay and straw and still be saved. They're Christians, he says. But he says about them in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, a Christian, but only as through fire. He seems to imply that there will be some Christians who will not have pursued Jesus very faithfully in this life or ambitiously or deeply in their experience, though saved will be as one saved through fire. Not implying purgatory here, but I am implying, and as I think Paul is, different experiences at seeing Jesus for the first time. So be mindful. Pursue him wholeheartedly so that when he comes, you won't shrink back, but you will run to him with confidence. But there are those who are not followers of Jesus, who are ashamed at the name of Jesus, and those who are ashamed of Jesus, Jesus says that he will be ashamed of them on that final day. So ask yourself, it's a good test. How will you react to seeing Jesus? His second coming reminds us to think through this. It also reminds us this, our second one, to examine our fruit by looking at the born-again root. Verse 29, we're told to look at our character because we know we have a righteous, a good king, a perfect savior. Look at verse 29 with me. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Revelation, Jesus is called the king who comes to make a righteous war. In 1 John 2, 1, he's called Jesus Christ the righteous. And the temptation when we hear verse 29 of our text is to say, well, I know God, or I want to know God, so I want to do what is right. I better do what is right so that I can know God. And while this sounds correct, it's just slightly twisted because it focuses on the fruit without looking at the root. John says your fruit is really a sign of your root. How does he say that? The verse says those who do righteousness have already been born again. They have been born anew. There's an ongoing impact of having a new heart that's been given to you. And what that means is that we will grow to be like God. Jeremiah 17 has one of the clearest places. You might hear echoes of Psalm 1 here. But Jeremiah 17 speaks this so clearly. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water 
that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The deeper we sink our roots into Jesus, Jeremiah is saying, even when the heat of life comes, when on the surface it looks like we're done for, there is a root that draws on the deep, cool, refreshing water of Jesus. Like that pure joy, that complete joy we talked about in week one. It keeps us from fearing or being anxious, Jeremiah says. But roots abide, don't they? They, they stick to it, the ground, don't they? This weekend, you probably saw a few plants with the heat wither that either you planted recently or maybe transplanted recently. Why is that? A, a plant can't establish new roots overnight. Or a healthy, deep, robust root system uh, in, a, in a moment. It takes time. It has to do what? Abide in that ground for a while. The born-again person abides in Jesus and those roots will sink in and those roots will produce goodness, a fruit from the in, born-again inside out. John is saying the new birth precedes the behavior. The, the deep roots will make you resilient when heat comes. There's a lot of temptation right now, which I'm feeling too which I think is coming from tons of anxiety in this moment, this pandemic moment, to be heard, to be loud, to shock, to ruffle feathers. When trials come for the deep-rooted believer, what does Jeremiah say? There will be a calmness, a peace, even when the surface is hot. John takes this call to righteous living, even one step further. He says, examine your fruit by looking at the root. Are you born again? Is it coming from that root of deep root sunk into Jesus? But he takes it one step further when he explains that it's also our family membership that produces righteousness. The second coming reminds us to see that knowing the love of God will make us strangers to the world but look pure like Christ. Verses 3, 1 through 3 talk about the fact that we know the love of God is going to make us look strange to the world. It's just going to. Because when you know the love of the Father, what happens? You realize he calls you child. And that sonship or daughtership can never be taken away from you. And when you realize that, you begin to blossom. You begin to grow. You have been born again. You've been chosen in adoption by the Father. This isn't something you earned. It was given by God. John says, the love you've been given. See the love of, of the Father that's called you a child of God in chapter 3, verse 1. But John also writes in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, he gives us the best sense of this chosen adopted privilege when he says this there in chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's what receiving is, he gave the right to become, there it is, 
children of God, who were born, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of your own will, the will of man, but of God. This same author of our letter says, he's saying, do you see what God did for you? To deal with your sin, to to make a way back to his family by love for you, to bring you back as a child. And do you see, as John's saying, that in receiving Jesus, believing in his name, is a right that God gives you to be a child. Not because of your blood, your pedigree, your family name. Not even because of your will, John says, or your works, but purely a free gift from God. His will caused you to be born again, John is saying, as he adopted you into his family. And if that's the case, in him, verse 3 says, If you find your hope in him, verse 3 says, you will purify yourself. You'll be diligent at seeking holiness, at growing in grace and goodness and righteousness. Here's the difference. We've got to catch this. You have to hear this. Here is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Christianity doesn't say, do right And that will lead you to being a child of God. That's what every other religion says. You do right, and if you do, and you reach a certain level, then you'll be welcomed into God's family. Every other religion of the world says that. Every other philosophy, every other system says, let me show you how to live, and if you live that way, you'll make it. Only Christianity says, you are welcomed by God's will and the new birth he gives you. So, being welcome causes you to do right. Do you see the difference? It's so important. It's so practical. Do you know how you can tell if someone is a Christian? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British pastor, died in the 80s. One of my favorite preachers of all time uh, said this. He said, you, know, you can tell how someone is a Christian. If you ask them, uh, uh, are you a Christian? And they answer you, well, I'm trying to be. If that's the way someone answers, if that's the way you would answer, you don't understand the revolutionary nature of the new birth and being welcomed into God's family as a child. It's been given to us. Something has been done for you. To keep our plant metaphor going, you've been repotted in new soil. Your roots have been transplanted. You've been born again. And that kind of love, that kind of family welcome will make you live in a strangely fruitful way. John says in verses 1 through 3, you won't look like everyone else. And in fact, the day you see Jesus, his second coming, John says, you'll be instantly transformed in purification to look like him in that moment. And that truth should cause us, you and I, all the more now to purify ourselves. We've been welcomed in. We've been brought in. That vision of Christ returning, Sam Storm, the pastor, got it so right when he said, just as the vision of Christ in the future, in that moment, will sanctify us. That means make us pure. 
holy in that moment, the vision of Christ in the present in Scripture sanctifies us progressively, ongoing. It's our experience of Christ that sanctifies us. Hasn't that been the message of 1 John all throughout? That Christianity is not just objective doctrine, what you know. It is that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. It's experiential, subjective. It's abiding. It's sinking your roots in. It's experiencing Christ not just in your head, but shed abroad his love on your heart. Ponder his second coming. It'll remind you of these things. Well, as I said, he looks at his first as well. John does his first coming. So let's look at his first coming to close today. He bookends, remember what I said, He uses the second to remind us to abide, examine, and know. And now Jesus' first coming, we kind of go in reverse, back in time. They're like these two bookends that cause us to examine how we live in between them. The first coming reminds us as well of some things. It's going to remind us that he came to do some things. We transition to verses 4 through 10, in which really John returns to the theme of chapter 2, 28 and 29, The connection between knowing God and doing good. He proceeds to show us how being a child of God, if you've been born again, welcomed in, adopted into that family through that amazing love of God, he shows us how it's absolutely incompatible with an ongoing practice of sinning. We have some verses in this section that I think are here to kind of shock us a little bit. They make us think, well, Can I be a Christian? I still sin, and John says if you keep on sinning, you don't know him. These are great verses that strike in particular at those who have a false assurance that they're followers of Christ. Is that you today? Maybe you're not sure. Let these verses challenge you, convict us, but also encourage us. So let's revisit Christ's first coming to see that it reminds us that he came the first time to deal with sin so that we wouldn't live in sin. Sin is a serious thing. I I loved hearing it come from the mouth of of the children as they read because uh, such sweet and innocent in ways, faces and voices that read these verses, but they were saying powerful things. Sin in verses 4 through 6 is described as law-breaking. He appeared, John says, that he might take away our sin, deal with the problem of sin, our law-breaking. No sin, no need of Jesus. He appeared because, John says, we are lawbreakers. And to practice sinning is to disregard his entire first mission to earth and why he came. And it's so offensive to us, the idea that Jesus came to save us from sin. Do you know why that is? Because it means that sin is so serious that it took the death of God's Son, the death of God, to deal with it. There is nothing more offensive on this entire earth than to say these words to the human heart. Jesus died for your sins. It means saying, that you are that bad, a lawbreaker. 
and your situation is so hopeless that you need something so radical called the incarnation. Jesus, the eternal Son, taking on flesh and then allowing, not even allowing, but purposing that that flesh be run through by nails and a spear for you. No way, no way, people say. No other religion believes this type of thing. And there are even those who call themselves Christians who don't believe this either. That we were in such a terrible state that we needed the incarnation, the death of the Son of God. But here's the beauty. It also means you're more loved than you ever dared imagine. Because again, Jesus appeared to deal with sin. John says. So that when we sin, though, if that's the case, we're actually saying, if it's law-breaking, we're actually saying, I hate you as rightful king. And I hate your law. And I even hate what you call good. Do you see? It's never just about breaking a rule. It's so much more than that. It's that we can't imagine a good life unless all restraints are removed. It's the distorted view that freedom is the ultimate good. No, no, no. The ultimate good is living the way you were designed to live. Ultimate freedom now. There is a good type of freedom. But ultimate freedom is just another form of tyranny. Tyranny to your own desires. And where do we find this message most clearly? It's a Western, modern American view of life, and this pandemic has revealed to us the shortcomings of our individualism, our unbridled addiction to our own desires. Quoting Rod Dreher, a Christian writer, who was, all, who was quoting a, another Christian, Ben Crosby, he said this, the pandemic, he said, has made it all too clear that both the liberal and conservative visions of American life based on, quote, self-fulfillment via liberation to pursue one's own desires. It's not enough. Turns out we need each other, he said. And we need each other dearly. What Christianity offers us, he added, is, quote, a version of our common life more robust than individual pursuit of desire fulfillment or profit. In light of that vision, the current pandemic can be usefully said, both a cross to bear and an opportunity to reflect the love that was first shown us in Christ. Have you seen that happening? Do you feel that tension in your own heart? In other words, what these two men are saying is that he appeared in love to defeat sin so we wouldn't have to just live life for ourselves, but to love others first. That's the cross. That's the gospel. And that is what verse 6 is saying in chapter 3. If we abide in his first coming, what it means is that we will see not self-liberation as the ultimate good, but self-sacrifice, which is the definition of love. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. I need a dose of this right now. You need a dose of this right now. He appeared to defeat sin so we wouldn't live in sin. He also did something else on that first appearance. He appeared to destroy the devil, John says, so we would defeat our sin. John says, don't be deceived. 
what you do with your life matters. Some of the false teachers had gone out and, and were starting to say things like, well, I don't sin anymore. You know, what I do now is really kind of irrelevant. Christ is coming back someday and uh, I, I'm kind of totally purified now. And, uh, but John says something different. He says, jumping off from verse 6, if you have a habitual ongoing sin or you are living in some kind of ongoing sin and maybe not even caring if it's sin or calling it sin, John says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Sin is of the devil. And he says you can't be in both camps at the same time. You can't claim to be a Christian, John says, and not deal with the sin in your life. Because to not deal with the sin in your life is to denigrate the work of Jesus who came to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil are sin, is sin. Now again, you hear these verses in verse 6 and verse 9a, which says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And it's troubling. I, I want to be honest. It's troubling. You might think, well, I still sin. Is that mean, am I of the devil? Do I not know Jesus? A Christian knows this. A Christian knows that he is both simultaneously a sinner and yet justified. It was a great quote that Martin Luther had. Simultaneously, sinner yet justified, saved. John said, when we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. And to say we don't sin makes God a liar. So when John says in verse 6 and verse 9, to sin is to not know him, he can't be saying here sinless perfection. It contradicts the vast majority of Scripture and John himself in his own letter. So what does he mean here? John means this. What are the prevailing habits and long-term patterns of your life? Do you see yourself growing over time? Do you even ask yourself that question? Is battling sin something that's even on your radar? Something you contemplate? Something you ask others? Have you seen me growing lately? We've said this before in this series, but are you looking, do you look different now this year than you did last year? Do you look different now this week than last week or this month than last month? Or how about pre-pandemic versus post someday? He is righteous. And because he is righteous, it is inevitable that if you are united to him, he will weed out the sin in your life. So if he's righteous to dismiss sin or to brazenly sin or to take sin lightly, a Christian can't do this. When you've been born again, adopted, made new, and you're abiding in the righteous one who became sin for you, 2 Corinthians says, and who's defeated the devil, something comes to you. Something comes inside of you that will inevitably change you. What is it? It's the third thing his first coming reminds us of. It's his seed. His first coming reminds us that he gives us his seed so we could evidence our adoption and, and affinity. What is it, his seed, that he gives you? I won't translate it as what it kind of boldly says metaphorically. You probably know what that might mean when I say he gives us his seed. This seed, as First Peter tells us, is probably the Holy Spirit. 
God's very nature is given to you. There's places in the Bible say, even in the Old Testament, I'll cause you to be born again. I'll give you a new heart. I'll place my spirit, my law inside of you. When he gives us his seed, he's giving us the Holy Spirit, God's nature. And the context of verse 9, it happens in being born again. And the Spirit's the one who does that as he enters into the unregenerate heart and causes this to happen. Jesus said that to Nicodemus in John 3. We are given this seed, a soil, a spring of water that our roots begin to be permanently established in. So what does this practically mean for your life? Well, it's both comfort, but it's also very convicting. It's comforting because we know, well, growth from seeds in real life is we're now all planting our gardens and watching them grow. Growth from seeds can be slow. It takes months and years, but it's always happening. The seed is always transforming as soon as it gets put in the ground and has the water and the the word for the Christian and the sunlight. So you, you may not see things change as fast as you would like that means in your life. There's some encouragement in that because we know we have seasons of fast growth and slow growth and sometimes two step forwards and two back. And, and don't judge yourself in a crisis mode. Uh, you know, do it when life is sort of, when there's not so much heat maybe. It's comforting. It's comforting as well because if you plant a watermelon seed, what do you get? A watermelon always, 100% of the time. <laughs> How about if you plant a sunflower seed? What do you get? You get a sunflower 100% of the time. So what happens then when you get a God seed in you? What appears? Well, you don't become God or a God. There's only one God. But, oh, when he puts in us his seed, we begin to be like the one who placed the seed in us, the Spirit of Christ, which means it's so encouraging. Your transformation is inevitable if the seed of God's been put in you. What could be more encouraging? And when you see it in verse 10, it says, it is evidence that you're one of his children, the seed of God being planted in you. And it's so encouraging because God's seed is like the seed of an oak tree that can smash anything in you that is sinful. Just give it time. You've seen cement, sidewalks, buckling because the roots of a tree are underneath and growing. The seed of God is more powerful than that in your life. So if you look at your life and say, you know what? God couldn't cover this sin. God couldn't pay for this sin. Don't believe it, John says. He plants his seed in you. But it also means... It also means that if it's inevitable you will grow and you don't see any growth in your life, this is very convicting for the believer. You have to examine your life. But you see, as it, as it will transform you, as it's inevitable it'll make you grow, it doesn't just make you a good person or just make you stop sinning more. We don't become some just self-righteous oak tree that looks down on all the other shrubs. Why can't they get their act together? Why can't they get it together? Look at me. I'm growing. I'm strong. The seed's in me. My branches and roots are out. I'm flourishing. That would be kind of horrible. But the verses finish in verse 10 with affinity. It also makes you a loving person. 
our affinity for each other, as verse 10 says. John says, if you don't love your brother too, not just, hey, be a good person, but truth and goodness is always connected to love. If you don't love your brother, verse 10 says, you're not of God. Because you as a Christian, you know you're only saved by the comings of Christ, his first, his second, who came to deal with your sin so that he could give you God's seed to make you more like him. You become a person who hears him say, Beloved, you're my child. I've adopted you. I've welcomed you with love and goodness so that you can also show that love and goodness and welcome all into your life. The gospel makes you gracious when you're the type of person who's heard him say, Beloved, you're my child. I've adopted you. And when he comes on that final day, if you are one of his, oh, guess what will happen? You will run to him as a child, as the song says, his face forever to behold. Would you pray with me as David comes to close us in song? Lord Jesus, we love your first coming. By it, our life has been made. By it, you have dealt with our sin and defeated the devil. By it, you have given us new life and the ability to be born again and to know you and to be purified as you. May we view, may we, may we view today, I ask, our pursuit of righteousness in an appropriate way. May we see that holy living comes first by being welcomed into the family of God, by letting the gospel be shed abroad in our hearts. Welcome doesn't come by living good. Living good comes by already being welcomed. Let us get that right. Fruit comes from the born-again root. And as we do, Lord Jesus, I ask that we would be a people that look forward to the second coming and what that challenges and, and convicts and shapes in us, that we will make sure we're ready. We will examine our hearts and lives and be used as iron in others' lives to sharpen each other. That means we can't be afraid of, of pointing out sin in others. We have to do it. That's actually a richer definition of love. We can't be afraid to repent and seek forgiveness when we do sin against others. Why should we be afraid? Our security is in the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And the second coming can only happen because you've been born again, Jesus, or you've been raised from the dead, Jesus. So let us find that security and comfort and hope in that. And we wait for the day when we, your face forever we will behold. In Christ's name, amen. David. Please join.